0: You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with hosts Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to an unnumbered episode of Dots, Lines, and Destinations, because I honestly don't know when I'm going to actually have time to edit and post this, but this is Seth recording. I am sitting in the shadows of a,
1: call this a church? San Domenico Cathedral.
0: The San Domenico Cathedral in Siena, Italy. Uh, and as you heard just there, I am joined by someone you haven't heard on our podcast before, uh, Joël. Joël. Joel, Joel. Joel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a Brazilian name and I'm terrible at basically all languages, even English. So, there you go. Uh, who is a aviation enthusiast. He writes for Aviazione Online. Aviacion Online. Um, which is
1: mostly Latin American? Help. Uh, let me start by saying we are the largest one in Latin America. Okay. Quite a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> um...
0: And has been writing about airplanes since he was 10. I learned out earlier. I learned earlier today uh, while we're having lunch, so kind of incredible. But he has promised, uh, in line with his uh, heritage, to convince me that the E2 is the best airplane on the market today, and I'm going to humor him and let him try. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff. But welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks, Seth. Uh, it's wonderful to be. Around this in this wonderful day in Siena, it's not going to rain today. Absolutely, no. so beautiful. You can hear the birds. Uh, yes, <laughs> um,
0: but uh, we were actually talking at lunch a little bit about the E two and the two twenty and comparing and sort of the different business models, the airlines that are doing it, and this and that. Um, I am interested in your take on that. I know you are, you will come slightly biased, obviously, but um, that's okay. Yeah. So, um, give me a little bit of your insights on the
1: two to- on the E two and. I'll start by saying that uh, the 2 is... I'm not biased at all. The 2 is made in the best country on Earth. No, <laughs> actually, uh, in Europe particularly, it's very difficult to compete with Ryanair and WIS, right? So you've got to have these smaller aircraft with smaller trip costs, with a similar unit cost, more or less, that allows you to bypass Ryanair and WIS in routes they would rather not operate. So, for example... If you take uh, Binter, that's why. If you look at their route map, that's what they're doing. They're trying to avoid at all costs Ryanair, right? So maybe they only compete in one route, which is, uh, if I remember correctly, Las Palmas, Palma de Majorca. I but in the other routes, they don't compete with Ryanair at all, and that's what the E2 allows them to do. Now, the the A220 also does the same, but if you look at the economics, the E2s are slightly better. So it's and by the way, because the two is selling less as of late, the pricing is always better for the airlines. So
0: (laughs) they've gone on sale a bit. Yeah, Um, you know, I think you mentioned the unit costs are lower um, and the the trip costs are lower. I think part of that though also depends on the routes they're deployed on, right? I mean, obviously, if I remember correctly, like range for the two twenty is much higher. It certainly was higher than the first generation. Uh, e-jets
1: i'm not sure about the e2 model but yeah uh look range is a factor uh but not so much in europe because uh sure. look maybe you could get uh, the a 20 doing as they do riga to las palmas but it's really a crazy situation because not many routes are, are that long particularly in europe and even when they are it's very difficult to sell them because they are so long that the fares need to be higher. Yeah. And uh, if someone from Latvia would do, uh, would go, say, to Palma, which is some hours shorter and some euros cheaper, why wouldn't they? Right? Yeah. So range is a factor. But in Europe, not so much, I would say.
0: Okay. That's fair. And, but it does change. You know. The challenge there, then, the counterpoint of the factors in Europe is Airbus. And as manufacturing here has so many countries that seem to want that manufacturing, depend on the manufacturing, it becomes a bit of a, uh, gover- well, for the airlines that are still government uh, backed or the, these days a lot took loans too. So it's, there seems to be a bit of supporting the local manufacturing economy on top of. Of course, the political influence. I mean,
1: I, I'm i very sorry for Embraer that the uh, agreement with Boeing didn't go through because that... Uh, would have provided them a great uh, sales sales uh, base to work on but uh, as of now uh, unfortunately Airbus is, is so much better positioned in Europe because you know the political factor is still an important one particularly in these smaller nations so you see uh, Croatia the, they could have gone with D-2 yeah. why not they, still they went with the 8 uh, 20 despite the 2 I mean uh, both aircraft are com- reasonably compared Comparable, but uh, they could have gone with the Embraer, yeah. particularly with the pricing, but still they ultimately went with the Airbus. So the political component in Europe is still very strong.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's, it's
1: tough to compete with Airbus, right?
0: Yeah. I don't. I don't try. <laughs> I also don't make airplanes, so that helps. Um, all right. Let's talk about some other things. You'd mentioned uh, earlier when we were talking your adoration for Michael O'Leary and Ryanair and their. Operations in the network. You talked about how cheap they are, sort of un- keeping unit costs down. Where you are, where we are here in Siena, you're close relatively to Florence and Pisa for airports. Yeah, uh, Pisa has a lot more service. I learned today that Florence's runway is very short, so thank you for that. Um, what are some like? How how much time do you get to spend traveling? I know you're in university here also, but how much time do you get to spend traveling around and getting to see other parts of Europe?
1: Well, as a university student, you know, I'm very bro. So, you know, every opportunity I, I get to save money, I'd go for it because, you know, it's a difficult life. Uh, but look, if you get Pisa, which is a 100,000 people city, they've got eight airplanes based in Pisa, Ryanair. Okay. So it's, uh, the numbers are incredible, but that's because the model works and because people actually want to fly Ryanair, right? So if you ask me how much I travel a lot, I think by my numbers, I travel with Ryanair some 40 times over the last two years. But that's thanks to their very low fares because they create this sort of demand in, say, 50% of the times I traveled with them. I didn't really need to travel, but because the price was so low, I just, you know, it was too good an offer to (laughs) hide. you see? Yeah. And so that's the marvel or oh, uh, I wish it was like this in America because even the ULCs in America they don't practice such low fares, but that's the way it is, right? Yeah. Well and and we
0: talked about distances and whatnot. I think in, for the ULCs in America, they get close on some of those fares. It's still not they're much longer routes than some of the stuff. I mean you have fewer one hour flights.
1: Yeah. That's what we sure. should think.
0: Is 'cause when you're talking about one hour flights in the U.S., a lot of those compete with people driving versus in Europe, the one hour flight competes with either the train or not traveling. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a little different there that helps push the ULCCs to a slightly longer routes. There's a few obviously short hops too, but, and we are more expensive. Yeah. Um,
1: and Reacher probably,
0: <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, Tell me tell me a little bit about uh, aviation in Brazil because that's obviously the other half of your uh, or your where you started. Like I said, you started you told me you started writing about aviation when you were ten. Um, my experience in Brazil has been I think only one flight within Brazil and that was on United from Rio to Sao Paulo or vice versa because they had the tag the triangle route at the time. Um, I don't think I've ever actually flown with the I've flown to and from a few times. But what's the environment like down there?
1: Well, first of all, if you compare it, you cannot compare with the United States or Europe because Brazil is, frankly, a poor country, so people cannot afford to travel, Mm -hmm. right? But still, we are a very large country with 200 million people, so somebody needs to travel. Yeah. And that's why we've got three big, consolidated, relatively stable airlines, so Azul, Go, and Latam, which which are all largely the same size, but... uh, uh, the new government says that only ten percent of the people actually fly, even though the numbers are, you know, zero point five trips per person per year. Okay. So actually, the this zero point five becomes much less when you when you think about it, right? But still, uh, I think the market in Brazil is relatively stable after COVID. The, the airlines negotiated great deals to renegotiate their debts. I mean, they're living with more dev now than before, apart from LATAM, which did the Chapter 11, so... Yeah. But I think the upper hand right now stands with LATAM because of the Chapter 11, because while the others were renegotiating leases and deferring payments, which they now have to pay, LATAM was, you know, slashing many, many structural costs, and now they are living much better prepared to endure competition with Go and Azul, which, frankly, are some of the most efficient airlines in the world, if Brazil was in such a difficult market to operate in, they would be some of the most profitable airlines in the world
0: yeah, and I guess that's the other interesting thing about the market is it's it is a huge domestic market i think i've the both Gol and the Azul domestic route maps are sort of you know a splotch of just you know there a lot of destinations, a lot of lines c- connecting between point to point and hub you know they, they sort of mix that model up um with him also has the benefit of the long haul surface but uh does that does having the long haul skew it does the short haul enough for those airline i mean certainly azul i think they have a little bit of international right
1: well azul tries to be more cautious with long haul because uh they don't want to go astray from their original business model if they even though they did already right actually right? they do have the 330s right yeah, they do. And now the 350s, which I think is kind of crazy. But, you know, they know better than younger. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. They're airlines. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> but, but still, look, Lamao is difficult because few people travel in Brazil. Never mind with the weak uh, currency that we got now. Yeah. So people would rather stay in Brazil as they did during the pandemic. Uh, now the dollar is a little bit more expensive. So actually people prefer to go to Europe to spend their money uh, instead of the US. But but still, when you see the numbers, it's a very marginal thing. It's not like millions of people flock to Palma or to Madrid every year. Actually, it's, it's in the 100,000s. So, But still, it's a very sizable portion of the business for, for these airlines, particularly to LATAM. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think they went the radical way and asked for the Chapter 11 because they saw that the thing was big and yeah. go away that soon. And the
0: long haul was a much bigger part of their operation. And so they to, knew that was going to be closed. And it paid off now. Yeah. No, and I guess, you know, for Azul, obviously, in the Florida routes, mostly Florida and Portugal, right?
1: Yeah, it's for Lauderdale, Orlando, Lisbon. Now they're going to Paris. No. Right. There was some talk about uh, uh, Milan as well, but I didn't see confirmation on that. And they also want to return in the short, medium term to New York. But I saw an interview with Azul CFO these days, and he said every time that we announce New York, something happens. So <laughs> they announced it before the big recession in 2015, and they announced it before COVID like in January 2020. So oh, they are quite wary with the third time. You know, but... <laughs> Can we pay them to
0: not announce yeah. it because it would be better for society? Yes, I hope. Yeah, well I'll have to keep my eye open next time they announce it for what's about to go wrong. Um <laughs> interesting. Um Going back to the E two versus the two twenty, we you, t- you you touched on this a little bit earlier with uh the Riga to Las Palmas. Um or to, yeah, to Las Palmas and they have Dubai also, if I remember Seven hour plus flights, eight hour flights. Uh on you know, listen, they have a business class model, but they also have a very the uh, economy class uh basic economy sort of offering with everything unbundled fees for snacks everything in the back um but martin gauss is pretty aggressive about making sure he gets what he wants
1: but at the same time they've got nowhere else to fly so they need yeah. to put those planes somewhere right i mean i interviewed martin once he's a very nice intelligent guy but uh Air Baltic is in a very difficult situation because of the, the war. They cannot fly to Russia and Belarus and Ukraine anymore. So, And they, at the same time, they are receiving so many H-20s. Yeah. You have got to deploy this plane somewhere. And there's only so much demand that goes to Frankfurt or Munich. So you've got to stimulate those routes to leisure destinations as well. I, I, I'm not criticizing them, at the least, because I know that they are in a very difficult situation as of now. Yeah. It's an interesting
0: one also, like they're they have their route network. They're also though they have wet leased some planes out to other airlines. I flew on a Air Baltic A two twenty for Swiss a couple weeks ago. Uh and at the same time they've been having issues with the Pratt and Whitney engines and had to wet lease planes in to operate for their summer schedule because the I think they've had one plane that's been on the ground more than a year now.
1: Yeah, it's immense. But at the same time, it's at no fault of their own. First there's COVID, then there's the war, then there's the supply chain issues. Uh, It's such unluck, uh, such lack of luck, actually. But, you know, they're doing quite well, considering all the circumstances, you know. But, as I said, uh, these very long routes, there, of course, the 8-20 allows them to do it, but it's more opportunistic than, you know, than anything else, because People in Latvia still want to go to, to see the sun, particularly because it snows a lot in Latvia and it's very cold in the winter, but, you know, they I, I'm sure they would rather be using this, this aircraft to boost their hub uh, to Russia, to, say, Moscow, St. Petersburg, but they're not able to, right? Right.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting challenge. And then there's the other factor on that, which is they are, once again, still talking about going public, um, which is- They've been talking about for a long time, I know, um, but as they've repaid their debt to the government, I think, um, I think I saw a release about that the other day, uh, and they're working towards getting there in 2024 to get back um, into the public market and sort of let the Latvian government cash in on the investment they made in having these, in, you know, entrusting to rebuild the airline and converting to the C-Series at the time, right? They were they were one of the first big airlines to commit, or they weren't a big airline, but they were one of the first big commitments to bombardier when it was still called the c series
1: and it faded off didn't
0: it? yeah well <laughs> probably we'll see i still got a few engines out of service <laughs> um what else is interesting
1: what else is fun well uh i i i was talking to some friends these days about the A220 and about air baltic and uh they essentially with these supply chain issues with the bright Whitney issues which by the way they also power the e twos handy eight yeah. or twenty new. <laughs> they barely fly these days, but that's the way it is right?
0: yeah, now that is an interesting point' is there's been a lot of a lot of issues with engines i I keep reading sort of airworthiness directives every time the f a a issues them I you know click through them there and just, there seems to be a lot of directives about the high pressure turbine blades and those things I just we've talked about this on the show a little bit before, I know foz has some strong thoughts on it but how close we're getting to sort of the edge of what the materials can support long term the amount of stress right like the engine spins hotter than theoretically the melting point of the metals but they don't deform so like there's a little bit of magic in there and i think flying is all magic so that's cool but uh you know we, we do seem to be pushing more and more into the edges of what is possible with these systems
1: and look uh I'm uh, an economics major, so I, I would really rather not uh, talk about yeah. engineering <laughs> because I trust the engineers in whatever yeah, yeah. they do.
0: <laughs> That's fair.
1: Uh, I hope, I hope to, they started out because I mean,
0: yeah. not amateurs. No, but it is one of those interesting situations where each time you look at it, you're like it's we do seem to be teetering on the edge, and that certainly uh, I don't think it's unsafe, but it does make me wonder about what is the future hold you know what's the next generation of engines can they be even bigger even more efficient or do we have to do a you know do we does it become the ductless like right the free spinning blades uh fans uh that is it ge is trying to develop that or saffron saffron with ge is trying to develop that uh there's some interesting designs out there i still don't think we're anywhere close to hydrogen and electric being mainline aircraft power so that's a long way out so we're gonna need something along the way
1: we're all in the same boat, right? Yeah.
0: But, awesome. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, yeah. And I really appreciate it. Also, thank you for, you know, agreeing to meet me and show me around Siena and Wander. Did you enjoy it? I did. See, it's yeah. a beautiful town, um, tiny, which makes it easy to visit. Um, I've spent now a grand total of three hours here, and I've been informed that I've seen almost all of it. Not really, but uh, we haven't gone into any of the churches yet. So, uh, that's certainly allowed our visit to be much quicker. But
1: uh the churches
0: would take days Yeah. So. <laughs> but yeah, it's a cute little town. Um delicious food. Uh boar is apparently the uh meat of the local meat that's uh they're famous for. I had a delicious boar ragu on pappardelle um pasta homemade at the restaurant this afternoon. So full endorse that. Um and yeah, I appreciate it. So uh to our listeners, thanks for joining uh on this rambling and bizarre little mini episode here in siena and we'll talk to you next time take care cheers